As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Joe Lowry, and today I'm joined by the one, the only, Taylor Rockwell. Taylor, it is so great to talk to you. How are you? I'm good, man. It's 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 nice to hear you do the introduction. It's it's the first time in a while that I've been on the receiving end of a hello and welcome, and it, and it's good to hear. It's it's been good to hear you and Ryan both doing it. Uh, I'm very grateful for all that you all have done to keep the show going, and for me being able to not focus on soccer, but instead on trying to find meager amounts of sleep over the last three weeks or so. It is weird a little bit for me to be doing that intro with you here, but I appreciate you letting me and Ryan take the reins a little bit over the last yeah. few weeks. How has the whole parenting thing been going? Because I think that's that's something that I've been wondering about. And I know that all the listeners yeah. are wondering that, too. Uh, it's been good. Like, I'm not even I'm trying to find like a clever way to answer. And I'll just say it's been it's been fun in a frightening, stressful, uh, 39 hour delivery sort of way. Oh, uh, but it's been it's like since since she showed up, it's sort of it's like a, a snap to it sort of thing. There's a lot like it's definitely focused me a bit more, even while the lack of sleep has made me even more ADD than I already am, but it is definitely one of those, like, military efficiency things of, like, I've got 10 minutes to do the dishes before she wakes back up. So it's kind of uh, streamlined things. That said, we are pushed back about an hour and 15 minutes in our recording <laughs> process because of uh, a baby refusing to sleep. So there are still some wrinkles to be ironed out for sure. I mean, I think it is fair that Reverie comes first and, and Margaret as well. I think that's an appropriate priority rankings. So, yeah, yeah don't don't feel I, bad about that. That's, that's important it's been, stuff. It's been odd to, like, sort of be... Like my usual rotation, I don't know if you do this, but like I have that sort of absent minded thing with the smartphone of like checking Reddit, checking Twitter, probably checking Instagram, checking email, like in the, in that sort of rotation. And to be doing way less of that or to have soccer way less on my mind, it's sort of odd to then be like, oh, that's still happening. Or like you see those stories kind of filter through here and there. But for the most part. My eye has been pretty firmly not on the soccer. Good pronunciation of her name, by the way. Reverie Nahir is how you say that one. Uh, yeah, it's definitely been on her. It's nice to be back, though. It is It is exciting to uh, spend the morning reading uh, in preparation for some Lister questions we're going to be getting to. And sort of, uh, I think, having not taken this long of a break from the show since, like, moving to Turkey, uh, it, it, it was nice. And then simultaneously, as like kind of is the case with most vacations near the end, a little bit like, all right, I got to get back to it now. Get a little antsy. So it's good to have the uh, the nerves eased, but also to not have to do the hello and welcome. I appreciate you doing that. Well, if it gives you any sense of comfort after being away from the soccer world for a little bit, Sam Allardyce is now the manager of West Brom in the Premier League. So really, things haven't changed a whole lot since you've been away. <laughs> things are things are pretty much the same as they've ever been. The crew MLS champions, man. That's pretty <laughs> that's pretty incredible. That was one that did not uh, that I did not miss. It was crazy to be in Columbus when we were doing the World Cup comedy tour at a time when it seemed very likely that that team was not going to still be in that city. And you met all that we met all those people who were so passionate and cared so much. And it really that was one of the few soccer stories that like did penetrate the bubble a little bit just because I was so happy for the wonderful people of Columbus for the team as well and everything they were able to accomplish in a very strange 
MLS season. How is that for you? How have been the, the playoffs been? How is uh, the crew's eventual championship? I mean, the crew were so good in MLS Cup. They played Seattle one three to nothing. I talked about it with Sam Stageschool yesterday. Yeah, you did. They were dominant in that game in, in a way that I honestly didn't expect. And just it, it just has been a crazy Major League Soccer season for literally everyone involved from the beginning of the season, and then two weeks in or two games in, things get shut down, and there's a month, month, two month, three month long break, and then it's MLS is back, and then games are coming thick and fast for the rest of the season. The whole entire year was bonkers, as it has been for everyone. But yeah, it was a great ending to the year with that game on Saturday. I, I tremendously enjoyed watching it. You know, you know, Taylor, I think sometimes when I'm watching so many games, and I bet this happens to you too, maybe even listeners out there if they watch a lot of soccer, sometimes it gets to be work and it stops being fun. Yeah. But watching that game on Saturday was fun, and it reminded me of just how awesome soccer is and how much I enjoy it. And so I really couldn't have asked personally for a better end to the season. Oh, that's really great, man. That's, it's, that does connect sort of for me with like the, the positive things I heard about parenting, about how even when there are the moments when she won't stop crying for half an hour and you don't know what else to do, there will then be the kind of corresponding moment that reminds you that like, oh, she, she's worth it. It's pretty great. And it seems like maybe that's what Columbus winning was for you. That it was (laughs) sometimes, yeah, I'm with you. It can be a little bit. But when you have games as much as we do or as, as frequently as we do these days, it can be easy to just sort of get lost in the churn of game, result, game, result, game, result, and to have those moments that stand out and sort of make it that much more meaningful. Yeah, I'm with you. It's pretty great. It is pretty darn great. You know what else is great, Taylor? Uh, I'm a big fan of listener questions, and we've got some great ones to get to today. Do you want to go ahead and get started? With one final like little note there, those listener questions coming from listeners, coming from the TSS community, and that is something that like obviously has meant the world to me uh, with Daryl's passing and how much like how beloved he was, how supportive everyone has been uh, to me, to the show, to Shannon, to you, to everybody else. Um, that outpouring of love and support has been incredible, and that has sort of carried over from people being really excited uh, with, with with Reverie arriving and learning the name and seeing photos of her. and And listeners have sent. Uh, we have some wolves onesies that were sent. We have uh, lots of books on parentings. Uh, we have books just for her to read, uh, including some sent by Joe and his family. Uh, also, some nice clothing sent by Joe and his family. You guys are good shoppers. I'll put it that way. <laughs> uh, but just like sort of that that connection to the community even if I'm not like watching soccer has never really been lost on me that there are all these people who I've never met and who Reverie has certainly never met, but who care about her. It really is another sort of like motivating thing and really positive thing that I'm just so grateful for and thankful for that so many people care about my daughter (laughs) and about the show and about everything else. So just a thank you to everybody who listens and has continued to listen and support. Um, it's, it's truly very much, uh, just a wonderful thing that I am truly grateful for. And on that note, I will stop saying emotional things. Let's answer some lister questions, Joe. No, let's, I mean, let's do it. But yeah, that was, that was good and necessary. And I'm glad that you stopped me to say yeah, that man. because those are all very important. Things. And, and you and Ryan as well. I want to note that like Joe and Ryan have been very good about like this, you know, there's always questions like, should, how does this work or should we do this or advice on, you know, like, or like, who should I book for this one or whatever? But for the most part, you all have just been handling things on your own. And mostly it's just been, how are things? How are you doing? Like at times when you all are are handling a lot more of the show than you certainly ever have, to then still be mindful of what I'm going through or what my experience is, I I, I also am very grateful uh, to both you and Ryan for that level of support. So final thank you to you and Ryan. I'm sure I'll thank him tomorrow, but to you, Joe, at least uh, for this show. You got it, man. You got it. Our <laughs> first bet. question on today's show. This one is mm-hmm. from Adam Kalin, who asks... Is the current depth of talent and their youth for the U.S. men's national team evidence that the youth system in the U.S. wasn't as broken as we were led to believe post-Kuva? If mm-hmm. so, does that also mean that U.S. soccer, Sunil Galati, etc., also weren't as terrible as we were led to believe when it comes to youth development? Mm-hmm. Wow, there's a lot to unpack yeah. on that one, Taylor. I'm not entirely sure where to begin. Well, I'm going to make it more convoluted by, like, Going slightly philosophical here and starting with basically, in my mind, for something to be broken, it has to have been working in an optimal way. So you then have the corresponding, well, now it's broken. It's no longer working. If a thing has just been not working optimally its entire existence, then that's just how it functions. And I say that just to say that I think the U.S. soccer, for the country as big as it is, for as many disparate groups as it's trying to unite, 
I don't think we could ever really say like, yep, that was the time when it was working perfectly. I think it has always been this evolving thing. Sometimes it has evolved faster and more successfully than others. What I think Kuva has showed us or showed us at the time, not necessarily that things were broken, but I think that there were a number of cracks that have been sort of papered over or that soccer fans or media members or even U.S. Soccer Federation had sort of overlooked because fundamentally we're still going to the World Cup. We're still, you know, competitive for the Gold Cup, if not winning it, making it to the final or what have you, breezing through qualification more or less. Like, I think we've always sort of looked at it as like, yeah, things are mostly fine. There are issues. There are always things that could be better. But what I think Kuva kind of exposed is you can only ride that for so long before you have to really take a detailed look at what's going on. I wouldn't say it showed that maybe... Things were broken, and I wouldn't say that now we can look back and say, like, oh, things were actually way better than they were. But I think we can see how, like, the decision to get rid of Jurgen Klinsmann, according to a number of different articles, it seems like U.S. soccer knew he wasn't maybe the right person for the job on multiple occasions, but never pulled the trigger because they didn't want to have to part with that money. Things were okay. And I think that those sort of delayed decisions... Those maybe slight lack of judgment here and there. I think that's the thing that maybe a change in, in the guard and then another change in who's in charge of U.S. soccer, but also sort of a more detailed look at what the processes are that Kuva necessitated. I think that has sort of improved things. I don't think things were broken necessarily, but I think there were areas for improvement, some of which we have already succeeded in. That's sort of my rough take on that one. And I've talked for a while. So now I'll be quiet. <laughs> By your definition, I agree with you. Things weren't. Things weren't necessarily broken. They just weren't working very well. Mm -hmm. and, and that resulted in a lack of top-tier, high-quality professional soccer players coming out of the United States of America. I mean, the lost generation, that, mm -hmm. that generation in the early to mid-1990s, right? The U.S. didn't produce a lot of quality professional pros You're talking in, about in that born? year. You're talking about born in the, in the yeah, 90s? Yeah, born, born in cool, the cool. 90s. Sorry, I mm -hmm. should have clarified there. Those, those players with birth years in, in 1990 into like 1996 – those guys didn't turn out to be top-tier professional players, with the exception of a few of them here and there. There wasn't a consistent pathway. There wasn't a consistent production line of really good soccer players. And so eventually, though, in, in 2007, the DA was founded. U.S. Soccer founded the Development Academy in that year to help pit the best youth teams in the U.S. against each other. And they started that in 2007, but even by 2017, with, with Kuva, when the U.S. didn't qualify for the 2018 World Cup, we still really weren't seeing players being developed and players come out of the DA system and be ready to make an impact for the U.S. I think that was because the players simply weren't old enough yet. It takes time for competitions and, and especially youth competitions and youth development systems to emerge. And it just hadn't happened yet. And so add that to all the factors that you just said, Taylor. I think things were on the up and up in hindsight. At least we can tell this now starting around 2007 and Sunil Gulati was president during that time, was USSF president during that stretch of time, but things just were moving slowly, more slowly than they probably should have been moving. Yeah. But they were moving ever so slightly behind the scenes, at least. Yeah, man. I think that's the way to, the, the way to put it. Like I saw, uh, like a Reddit shower thought headline of like, uh, it's possible for a, a person to have lived from, like the first flight from the Wright brothers, like they would have been alive when that happened through the moon landing. Like that happened that quickly. And I think it's easy to forget how quickly like progress escalates. And I think to your point, if you don't have those players coming through, if you don't have that development occurring, certainly not to the, of the rate we do now to the quality we do now. But the U.S. is still qualifying with the kind of same people and they're doing OK. And sometimes they make it out of the group and it's really exciting. Why would you change things? Why would you be like, well, no, we've got to fundamentally upend everything we're doing or reexamine all of our processes only when you fail, only when you don't qualify, I think, does it sort of necessitate reevaluation. And I and so I think like. Kuva doesn't, again, it doesn't show that things are broken. I think it shows that the old way of doing things is no longer working and maybe hasn't been working for a while, but we're now seeing just how dramatically it isn't working and how much it needs to change. And I think it has, because again, we've had two different presidents since then uh, for various reasons uh, and lots of other little changes, players moving, players moving to bigger teams, Weston McKinney doing back heels at time of recording. Uh, so I think... It's it's I think I take your point then that it wasn't that it was as bad, but I think it was that there was significant room for improvement.
And I want to be clear, things were really bad. I remember the yeah. feeling that night. I wonder, I wonder oh, how yeah. many people remember that feeling watching the U.S. lose mm-hmm. that game. The famous picture of, of Christian Pulisic with, you know, just crying right on the field. That was bad. That was a bad moment in American soccer history and it will always be a bad moment. But help was on the way. Again, in hindsight, that help was on the way. It had Christian Pulisic at Dortmund back in 2017. Weston McKennie had recently moved to Schalke back in 2017. Now, fast forward to today, there have been nine U.S. players already who have played in the Champions mm-hmm. League this season. And there's more coming up through the pipeline. It's not the DA anymore here in the United States. It's, it's MLS Next. That's what it's been rebranded as and tweaked slightly to include more clubs from around the country, from different leagues and things like that. But we're seeing progress. And I think Kuva, if Kuva had happened or if it hadn't happened, we would see that progress either way. But still, seeing Kuva happen in the way that it did, did send, uh, did send shockwaves throughout the United States soccer community that I think raised awareness for the changes that needed to happen under Sunil Galati, albeit briefly after that. And, and just all the things that have happened since then to help the United States produce more quality professional soccer players. So let's let's thought experiment this one for a minute. It's a thing I've genuinely not wanted to do or thought to do until this very moment. But let's say the U.S. is able to get the results. They still qualify in Cuba. They go to the World Cup of 2018 with Bruce Arena in charge. Uh, he had said prior to that sort of round of qualification that he was using... You know, he was focused on making sure they got to the tournament. Then he was going to bring in new players to sort of augment the squad, change things up and see what worked. So let's say he brings in a few people. They go to the, to the 2018 World Cup. Maybe they do okay. Maybe they make it out of the group or maybe they just sort of like, like putter along, finish third and it's okay under the cir- circumstances. Like, do you think we still have the sort of growth that we've seen. Do you think that the failure to make a World Cup like really did change things? Or do you think it just sort of was an evolution that was already underway that just seems that much more dramatic because of the failure to qualify? I think it would have changed the narrative, but it it wouldn't have Mm -hmm. changed the progress that we've seen. I think because the DA had been around in, in 2018, it would have been for 11 years. I don't I actually don't think I'm overstating how important the DA has been. There were issues with it. And now it's now it's gone, as I said before, but it was it has been instrumental Mm -hmm. in creating these pros. And so I think I think the narrative would have changed and we would have been less down about soccer in the United States because it would have been pretty much the same as it ever was. Right. The U.S. gets to the World Cup, at least in in recent history, they get to the World Cup and they do okay, And, you know, we do the same thing again four years later. Having that that change from the routine did jolt some people, maybe myself included. But I think either way, those players were coming. And in either way, a few years post the 2018 World Cup, we would have still seen guys like Pulisic and McKenney and in all the other players in the Champions League right now. We still would have seen those guys playing in big European games. At least that's what I think. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you think in this thought experiment? I think it, it, it does definitely change the way we perceive the program that I think especially in the fallout from Kuva, the failure to qualify, just how, how Suno Galati went from like, oh yeah, he's kind of like a power broker in FIFA now, and you might not love what's happening, but like, you know, it's still getting stuff done. So like, I remember going to that convention in Philadelphia, uh, when he announced he wasn't going to, uh, run again. And just the level of frustration and anger, it's what Eric Winaldo really played on when he was running for president, was just, I'm going to fix this, things are terrible. I don't think that that would have existed. I don't think that that level of animosity would have been around, certainly not because they would have qualified and it would have just been sort of like, yeah, this is kind of the status quo. And so then the question is, like, does that sort of vitriol, does that frustration lead to improvements? Probably not. It probably just means the fandom is more focused on things that they wouldn't have been otherwise. They're more focused on the development academy or why is this happening or how is recruitment working or why isn't there a U17 coach? I think probably people take a more vested interest in some of the decisions. I would argue that, say, the Glassdoor review controversy, uh, that probably isn't as big of a deal, if a deal at all, if the United States goes to the World Cup. So I do think some of the failures do lead to change and do have ramifications down the road. But like for me personally, I'll just say that prior to that, if you ask me what was the worst moment as a U.S. soccer fan – like maybe it's the 2006 World Cup, like losing to the Czech Republic the way they did or going out to Ghana. Like there's other moments here and there. Like, it, is it the Torsten Frings handball? Like, is that even the worst thing if you're complaining about like what happens in the knockout rounds of a World Cup? Like, I think we as fans now know what the worst moment for U.S. soccer is. Yeah. And I think to like in some ways that is a 
a nice thing to sort of know, like, this is the worst thing. So it gives us a kind of scale, a baseline for what positive is, for what improvements are. So in that way, I guess it's sort of a positive, though I still hesitate and sort of shudder on a fundamental level to ever say Kuva was a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it is fun, though, to think about how far the United States has come yeah. in a soccer sense since 2017. That's that's really cool. And I like thinking about that because it makes me happy because the U.S. is getting better. There are a lot of a lot of bad things in American soccer, mm-hmm. but there are, there are also right now and in, in the future as well going to be a lot of positive developments. And I'm really excited to be along for that ride. I would agree. Uh, my final thing I would say about this one, I don't want to go too long on this one, but uh, I would say like going back to Sunu Galati for a moment, I think it's really easy to remember Kuva, to remember him stepping down and to remember some of the comments around that time period. Like that, like if, if Clint's shot goes in instead of hitting the post, everything's different. And I think he truly believed that. But if you take that statement in a vacuum, it sounds like, you know, everything is normal. Everything's fine. And I think it's easy to remember those moments in a very negative way and forget so much of the progress for the U.S. national team, for the men's side, I should say, specifically the men's side, uh, is like under the direction of Sunu Galati and the idea that the United States come to wield more power in global soccer because he had been there for so long and had the connections he did, I think is a, is is a key thing to remember in terms of what he did to help grow the game. But I also understand why people have some antipathy for, uh, towards him. I would say that he, maybe more than a lot of other figures, I have some sympathy for in the fallout uh, from Kuva, though... Uh, most of my frustration uh, remains with Jurgen Klinsmann and a little bit with Bruce. Arena, but that's my, my, my final note on that one. Uh, but I uh, wanted to make sure you get a final word in as well, Joe. No, that's I think I think we summed it up cool. quite well. I don't really have anything right. else to add. Well, then let's get to the next question, which I think we can probably answer slightly more succinctly. It comes from <laughs> Jonathan Nelson. Uh, for when one can't watch a match, who or what site has the best individual player ratings or reviews? Joe, thoughts? Yeah, so I don't want to be a negative Nate here. But mm-hmm. I really, I really don't like most of the individual player ratings or review sites or apps that are out there. But I do, yeah. I do totally understand that sometimes you can't watch a game. Sometimes I can't watch a game. And so then the important question I think to ask ourselves in order for us to be able to answer Jonathan's question in a somewhat more succinct way is what are player ratings good for? What can yeah. they tell us? Because I think that's, that's a problem. I see on Twitter sometimes people, I'm not trying to call anybody out here. I see, mm-hmm. I see people posting those those ratings, those match ratings that are generated mm-hmm. by websites or apps, and they're citing them as if those are a perfect summation of how players play. And, and they're not. Yeah. I think for me, they're usually pretty good. Those ratings are good to give you a feel for how involved a player was in a game or how much they contributed to scoring or assisting goals or maybe for a goalkeeper keeping a clean sheet or, or stopping shots. Those are those are valuable things, and those are good pieces of information but those aren't the only things that matter. And so for me, if I want to get an idea of involvement and of goal-scoring contributions, I will use who scored. I like who scored mm-hmm. uh, for a number of different things, but they do have these these out of 10 kind of player ratings. And then I also use FotMob on my phone. I use FotMob mm-hmm. probably the most just because it's the most convenient. So those are the two for me within the parameters of what I think yep. player ratings are good for. What Which ones do you use and do you agree kind of with my assessment of player ratings in general? Uh, 100%. Especially because for our show, where we're trying to kind of get to the deeper heart of like, what happened here? Or why did this happen? Or what was this player trying to do? Looking at those numbers and just seeing like, oh, he had a 5.5, he had a bad game. Like, I think it, it, it it's too simplistic for the analysis we would like to provide. I hope that doesn't sound like my head is shoved too far up a certain orifice. Uh, <laughs> but but I think that like that, that is my hesitation with those sites is like, I don't know what their, like their calculations are. I don't know what they're waiting. And so you can look at that and see a rough idea. And I'm with you on that one that uh, I like FB ref and I like soccer way for kind of stats and lineups and you can kind of get a, a sense of trends. I like who scored. Uh, if you want the ratings, you can use that, but they have the live match data with graphics that I think is, is more useful to me in terms of you can look at, like I was looking at Arsenal Southampton today, a game I wasn't watching, but was sort of tracking online. And you can see like, oh, Arsenal have a lot of clearances from inside their own 18. That's interesting. That means Southampton must be crossing or getting the better share of the attacks. And I think you can draw some 
conclusions from that, that then I would go back and watch and see if that was actually the case or if there was another reason for why that was happening. But I, yeah, I, I 100% agree with you that I think just looking at those numbers as your evaluation for player performance, I think can be pretty unfair because if a coach asks the left back to be sort of a marauding left back, don't worry about retaining possession. Don't worry about pass completion. I just want you creating things. That player's stats are going to look bad, but if they are doing a thing, but if they look bad because the player is doing a thing that they've been in intentionally told to do, then you're not getting the full range of the story. So I think that's where I share some of your hesitation. Yeah, completely. I think we're totally on the same page on that. The one thing I wanted to add is I think five or 10 years from now, we could see player ratings and websites that do that. We could see them really change because more data and more analytics are becoming available and analytical processes are being done especially as tracking data becomes more and more publicly available, people are innovating. People are making mm-hmm. things. American soccer analysis is making things. A lot of different really smart people are developing different metrics that could turn into the player ratings of the future. And I think that's exciting. And it could be the middle ground between where you and I kind of are, Taylor, and wanting to dig a layer deeper. But then also just the people, myself included, who just don't have time to watch every single soccer game that happens. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that day when we do get a more well-rounded slightly more insightful player rating system. Yeah, I, I agree. Until that day, uh, to Jonathan's question of like like ways to sort of, if you haven't watched a match, to feel a bit more informed about it, I would say that like match reports exist for a reason. And people who write very good match reports are very valuable. And like Sid Lowe is great at this. Sid Lowe for The Guardian Basically, any match report he's writing about a La Liga game, I will read because I think he does a good job of like telling you the, the major incidents and the kind of stuff that you need to know, but also will focus on this player had a good game or this player did this and they don't usually do that. And I think those match reports tell you a story if you can't watch the game. Then, of course, you're dealing with individual bias and reporter bias. But I think if you sort of cultivate the people you like to read, Sam and Paul, yourself, Joe, are very good for MLS stories and sort of like see, like knowing the information that's happening. You're obviously very good for the like for the analytical side, the tactic side. Matt Doyle, again, same thing, like people who, you know, know what they're talking about. I think reading their reports of games can help inform you, in my opinion, better than, say, player ratings. Yeah, I'm 100% with you. I love that answer. Reading is good. Let's not let reading die, everybody. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, let's uh, continue some reading. We'll continue list your questions in a little bit, but let's do some ad reads if that works for you, Mr. Lowry. That absolutely works for me. Everyone, today's episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Mac. Weldon. Mack Weldon is a premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart designs and high quality fabrics. Mack Weldon offers a one-stop shop for men's basics, socks, shirts, hoodies, underwear, polos, active shorts, whatever you need, Mack Weldon has you covered, unlike the assortment of department store brands that make up <laughs> your top drawer. All of Mack Weldon's basics have a consistent fit that you can count on. Uh, I, I owned... Past tense, a decent amount of Mac, Mac Weldon apparel. I put it in past tense because it has all slowly migrated to my wife's drawers, uh, especially uh, post-pregnancy. She has been wearing like the lounge pants that I, I used to wear, uh, wear all the time. I let her wear once because they're extremely comfortable. It was my like, hey, you've had a rough day. You should wear these. These are extremely comfortable. <laughs> and now they are no longer in my possession. They're gone. Same yeah. thing for the socks. Same thing for the long sleeve t-shirt that I had. Uh, those are all now, uh, I think, staples for her post-pregnancy uh, because they're incredibly comfortable. They fit really well they're soft but they're like they're not oppressively uh like even though it's like a long sleeve shirt long sleeve or long pants they're still nice and breathable it's great material mac weldon gets the job done yeah i love mac weldon's versatility if if you want to go and work out mac weldon works for you if you're going Mm -hmm. out maybe not always the best idea right now but if you're doing it in a safe way mac weldon also works for you if you want to pretend like you're going out and you're still at home and you want to dress up Mack Weldon also works for that. Mack Weldon is for everyday life, and they really do mean every single day. 
Yeah. Uh, and they mean every single day you being comfortable. Uh, and they stick with their guarantee that if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it. They'll still refund you. No questions asked. They do not want you sending back your used slash dirty underwear to get that refund. They're okay with you hanging on to them because they just want you to be comfortable and happy. And that's always the goal when it comes to shopping. <laughs> so if all this sounds great to you, and I, I think it mm-hmm. should, for 20% off your first order, you can visit MacWeldon.com slash TSS and enter promo code TSS. Again, that's MacWeldon.com slash TSS for 20% off your first order. Thank you very much to Mac Weldon for sponsoring today's episode of The Total Soccer Show. Hey folks, this is Taylor from The Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, It's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Thank you very much to 1010 for sponsoring today's episode of the Total Soccer Show. Uh, you may have read about this in the New York Times or Forbes. We're excited to tell you more about 1010. Joe, take it away. Oh, yeah. 1010 is an exclusive collection of 10 one-of-a-kind engagement rings designed by 10 of the most distinctive designers working today. Using only diamonds responsibly sourced from Botswana, 10 design masters have each produced a uniquely beautiful commitment ring launching exclusively on January 18th at BlueNile.com. And Taylor, when they're gone, they're gone. They are gone indeed. We all know that the diamond engagement ring is iconic. It's a timeless expression of the deepest commitment between two people. And with 1010, it's beautifully re-envisioned in the hands of 10 modern designers working exclusively with sustainably sourced diamonds. If you're making 2021 plans or looking for a unique and meaningful way to celebrate Valentine's Day, you're definitely going to want to check this out. Again, this exciting limited edition collection of diamond engagement rings launches on January 18th, and you can preview it exclusively at BlueNile.com. One more time, that's BlueNile.com to take a look at these limited edition collection of diamond engagement rings launching January 18th. Thank you very much to 1010 for sponsoring today's episode of the Total Soccer Show. Thank you very much to our lovely listeners who sent us lovely questions. Joe, what should we answer next? This next question comes from Matthew Graham, who asks, Do you think there's a significant advantage for national teams in countries with one or two dominant teams that contain most or at least many of the country's best players? Then he gives a couple examples, like Germany with Bayern or Spain with Real Madrid and Barcelona. National teams like England, Mexico, and Argentina often underperform expectations and in contrast, bring players together from a wider set of club teams. Okay, mm-hmm. so our Taylor, our national teams that are able to draw from one or two clubs 
better off than teams who are drawing from a wider variety of clubs from around the world? I will give you the short answer first, which is sometimes. <laughs> uh, I love this question because I went back and forth on it and not just back and forth like waffling, but like hard and firm answers a couple different ways, a couple different times. And I've settled on sometimes because I think, yes, when those clubs are good, when they're in good form, then I think it, it bleeds into the national team. If you've got Bayern Munich winning the treble two years in a row and five or six members of your core national team are coming from that team, I think it helps. I think you have this sort of easy this this kind of confidence that probably radiates within the squad and I think elevates people around them. I think when that same group is maybe not having the success, then you can run into some obstacles. Uh, Bayern Munich, again, being a good example here because Germany in the 2014 World Cup, they have six players in the squad from Bayern Munich. Germany in 2018 had seven players from Bayern Munich. So more players, worse results. And I think that probably shows where Bayern were at that point or where they were going to be soon after uh, in that if your team isn't functioning at like tip-top efficiency and everybody's kind of bonded and playing well, you could have the opposite of the equation. I didn't even think about the negative side of this. I only thought about the fact that national teams don't get to spend a lot of time together, right? The, mm -hmm. So the more time that they get the players together, I thought originally the more time that is, the better. But now thinking about it, I mean, if Bayern Munich is is tanking, which isn't really happening right now, but if it was, then that could cause some serious morale problems. Maybe the players have had about enough of each other, and then they have to go spend time together in a national yeah. team camp for a week or for longer if it's a major international tournament. That could cause that could cause some real issues there, Taylor. I hadn't thought about that. Well, it's and it's interesting though because it goes both ways. Because for the like the Spain team in 2010 versus 2014, again, same thing. They have like like Spain in 2014. I think have 10 players from Real Madrid and Barcelona in 2010. They have 12. So a downturn for sure. But you still have like a, a comparable number there. And you would then look at that and think like, yeah, but it's Barcelona versus Real Madrid at a time when that's a very antagonistic rivalry. Not that it isn't always, as people will know if they listen to Joe's El Clasico Soccer 101. Uh, but there's always that idea of like, will they get along? Can you have a backline that's Pique and Ramos? And I think Spain proved that you can, and then sometimes you can't. But I think it can be a contentious thing if things aren't very good. But sometimes I think if you've got two major teams doing very big things, even then it can sort of blend well because players are coming in with a high level of expectation about the players around them. And that probably elevates everybody else. So I think, again, the answer is sometimes for me airing Closer to, yes, I think it probably does benefit teams as opposed to having to Brazil having to call in people from all over the world. It certainly hasn't hurt them in terms of the number of World Cups they've won. But you do wonder if like if they have people together more consistently, are they even a stronger team? And sometimes like with uh, with Chichi in the last World Cup, we saw him bring in domestic players because he feels like he can get them on board faster. They kind of know what he's about. He knows what they're about. And so sometimes I think having a few more domestic players in your squad is going to help you long term. I just want to imagine a world, Taylor, where Christian Pulisic and Weston McKennie, Tyler Adams and Musa and Reyna and all those guys play on the same club team and they just win every game because then we wouldn't have to deal with the downsides of this and it could only be the positive side. Imagine how stoked Greg Berhalter would be for that. I think he would be excited as long as that club wasn't playing in, in a directly opposing way <laughs> yeah. to how he wants to play. As but, long as they're not Schalke. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Literally any other club in the entire world but Schalke. I think for national teams who are trying to build an identity, like the United States men's national team is trying to do mm -hmm. right now under Berhalter, it is especially good. It's an especially big bonus if at least a handful of guys can be playing together or or we're seeing this in Europe right now, or or guys can be in close contact with each other. Guys who can, mm -hmm. can keep up communicating with each other and be in group chats with each other and occasionally get together and play Fortnite with each other. Yeah. All of those things, yeah. I think those are almost unquestionably good things as long as they don't despise each other. Um, and so as long as those are happening, as long as players are communicating with each other and growing yeah. together, I think that's the real value of playing together at a club team, not necessarily from a tactical side of things, because again, that style could be different than what your national team coach wants. I think the value is in learning each other's tendencies and learning more about the people that you're playing with. And I think that's hard to replace if you're not at least in contact with each other. But all, all that said, I do agree that it can be a bad thing. If you don't like a teammate or if you're not doing well at club level, there are some potential downsides of this idea.
There are, certainly. But I think you, you, you've hit the nail on the head there with, with like the connectivity of the squad. And I think you're absolutely right that it's no surprise to me that the younger members of the national team right now, uh, Reggie Cannon, I think probably won't love that the way, like phrasing it that way, though he himself <laughs> did that. But like, you do have this sort of, it seems, connectivity between them that, yeah, they're playing Fortnite, they're hanging out, they're playing FIFA, they're talking trash, they're commenting on each other's Instagram. And I think that, level of connectivity is something that maybe seems like a common thing. I think for American soccer fans who see that stuff happening, there's maybe an assumption that it happens all over the place. And to my knowledge, it doesn't. I think it's a big feature of the U.S. men's national team that players, I think it's why Greg Berhalter has this emphasis on bringing people in, at least of late, is because I think when people are in the camp and it's more relaxed, you don't have those huge egos that you might with other national teams. It seems to be just a, a good time, a relaxing time, albeit a time when you're being asked to learn things and execute plays and figure out formations and tactics. But I think the vibe of the national team is something that maybe we sort of take for granted or we assume other teams have and they don't necessarily. And so bringing it to to, uh, Matthew's question for a moment, like, I think that's what I keep going back to is like if you have teams performing well and everybody's kind of vibing and knows what's being asked of them and enjoys playing together. I think that is just so important, that level of chemistry and connectivity um, and and those players getting minutes and getting to play. And that's the other part of Matthew's question that I think is worth sort of focusing on is that if Liverpool and Man City become the two dominant teams in the Premier League for the next 10 years. Not saying that's necessarily what will happen, but let's say it did, and they're winning the Premier League back and forth. They're every now and then winning the Champions League, but they're doing so with like one or two English players in each of their starting lineups. And I don't, I'm not trying to pick on them. I'm just looking at them in relation to other bigger clubs like Barcelona, Bayern Munich, who tend to have more of their domestic players. Like, that's not necessarily helping the English team to have two teams that are dominant, but maybe only four or five players are benefiting from it. I think if you can get more players in there, so it's four or five players per team, I think that then pays dividends certainly down the road. I, I'm 100% with you. I think that is a fairly well-rounded, well-reasoned right. answer to Matthew's question, or at least I'm hoping so. Taylor, if you don't Let's have anything so. else to add, do you want to get to the next question? I do. It comes from Tyler Carson, who's almost named Tyler or Taylor. So that's almost good enough. Uh, I botched that joke. I apologize, Tyler. Can Americans who don't cut it for the U.S. national team play for Guam, the U.S. Virgin Islands and other FIFA recognized territories the United States owns? I think this one is pretty clear cut unless yep. I did my research wrong. And so I'm going to read. From... We'll find out if we, if we disagree, because <laughs> I agree with you. I, I'm going to read from FIFA's mm-hmm. Article 6.1. Of the regulations governing the applications of statutes. So I'm going to read from some FIFA. He's reading articles and statutes, folks. Buckle up. It's about to get real. If a player, (laughs) if a player was not born in the member association's territory and does not have a parent or grandparent that was born in the territory, Mm -hmm. the player is able to represent another member association that shares the same common nationality after two years residency. And there I'm going to explain that because that was kind of a bunch of gobbledygook, but it's not, it's not super complicated. So the, the question is, can Americans who don't make it for the U.S. national team play for some other territories that the United States control and right. own? The answer is sometimes. The answer is probably no, unless you have a parent or a grandparent who was born in that territory. Let's say it's Guam. Mm-hmm. The answer is no, unless you have that relative tie to that territory or you're able to go and move there and live there for two years. And then at that point, you would be eligible. And who would want to live in the hellscape that is the U.S. Virgin Islands? Oh, Nobody that wants terrible. That. Uh, yeah, I was actually I read an article in CNN from 2011 about the U.S. Virgin Islands national team who had sort of made it to the group stage of the earliest stage of World Cup qualifying, uh, but with a team that was mostly amateurs slash people who were like playing college soccer in the United States, but had either been born in the U.S. Virgin Islands or I think the captain had moved there from like Maryland when he was ten, and so. There you go. Has the the eligibility from living there. Some players who were born there can play for them. But yeah, aside from those sort of moments, it is. It, I can't just be like, well, Guam, here's your chance. I'm coming over. It would be exciting, though, right? I mean, imagine if if in this rising generation of of young American male talent, like imagine if if the bottom tier of that sort of just decided, yeah, we're gonna go and do our own thing in Guam. And we're going to play together and we're going to come in and qualify for the yeah. World Cup and play the U.S. in the Ocho or in the Hex, whatever it looks like down the line. 
I kind of I kind of like that idea. Maybe just from a storyline standpoint, maybe uh, maybe we'll start to get some players doing that. But they they can't actually, as I just said, that's that's a pipe dream, and it's not actually going to happen. <laughs> Uh, we did have the Richmond Kickers had Alex Lee playing for the Guam national team for a while, which I, I found pretty interesting. But given that he was living in Richmond, I'm going to assume he was either born in Guam or had family from there. And that's probably how that worked out for people who are like newer to this type of question or slightly newer to soccer or the like regulations behind it. It's worth noting. I think it's easy to assume that like. A country has a national team, and that's how it works. Uh, by my quick Googling, there are 195 sovereign nations in the world, plus the Vatican City and Palestine. So let's say 197. There are 211 FIFA-affiliated or, uh, associations. Uh, I think I don't know how the math adds up here, but there are 24 FIFA members that are not themselves sovereign states, including Guam, the U.S., and British Virgin Islands. Curaçao, another one. Uh, England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, also in that one, hilariously. Uh, but... You don't have to be a country as long as you are FIFA recognized, which is what some of these organizations like Guam now are. That was a more recent development. But then, yeah, you still have those sort of uh, regulations in place to ensure that you don't just have Guam giving a bunch of money to people to then say they're now from Guam and go play there. Not that that was going to happen, but you don't want it to be just sort of people jumping around to find a spot to play. Uh, I think a lot of that, in my mind, is looking towards maybe Qatar in 2022 and some of the the ways that they were looking to naturalize people that is no longer possible. Uh, but I think that is certainly part of it, but it ends up being that you have to have some of the residency or the uh, like the biological connection to that place in order to play there. Tyler, there you go, right out of the FIFA statutes and, and then confirmed by legal yeah. experts Taylor Rockwell and Joseph Lowry. <laughs> there you have it. That is the answer to your question. Taylor, before we keep going with our listener questions, and we have yes, some sir. great ones left... I wanted to let everyone know, and, and you'll do this with me, that today's episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Policy Genius. It's already December, which is mind-boggling to me, at least. Time is so funky. It's already December, and as much as we love getting seasonal, this month can be a little bit stressful. We've all got a long oh, list really? of things to do. Yeah, I don't know if you, I don't know if you personally were aware of that, Taylor, nah. but. Some people are experiencing a little bit of stress in their lives. What? We've all got a long list of things to do for the holidays. <laughs> if life insurance is one of those things way down on your list, Policy Genius might be able to help you cross it off. Uh, it is not even way down on my list. I've been saying, I think, like since Policy Genius were a sponsor, that I do not have life insurance and definitely need it. Uh, now having a daughter, I definitely need it even more. Uh, so the, I, I'm, I'm going to make you this solemn vow, uh, Joe, that maybe by the new year, I'm going to get life insurance via Policy Genius because, as they say, they make it very, very easy. Uh, in minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. You could save $1,500 or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. You don't have to just wait until you have a child to get life insurance. It's it's an advisable thing, uh, whether you're single or married or have kids or don't or whatever it might be. It's just good to have the sort of peace of mind that those around you will be uh, safe and secure long after uh, you maybe are no longer with them. And Policy Genius makes this whole process really simple. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and all the red tape. And that's just not with life insurance. They also can help you find the right home and auto insurance or disability insurance. So if you need life insurance but aren't sure exactly where to start, why not start at policygenius.com? It only takes a few minutes to find the right life insurance policy, apply, and cross another thing off your to-do list. Policy Genius, when it comes to life insurance, it's nice to get it right. Thank you very much to Policy Genius for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Joe, shall we do some more questions? Oh, yes, we shall. This next question, I think it's my turn to go. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. No, I honestly can't remember. It is, I think. Yeah. My memory is about the memory of a goldfish. So thank you for <laughs> confirming that for me. This one is from Richard Rolson, who asks... If your memory is that of a goldfish, mine is that of a goldfish's goldfish. How about that? <laughs> Ooh, that's, that's kind of a... That's a little twisted there. Goldfish having goldfish as pets. I, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> let's move past that. I don't... Eh, whatever. This one is from Richard Rolson, who asks... Are you also sleep-deprived, Jeff? I don't know, man. That was weird. I don't know why I struggled so much to string together a coherent sentence about goldfish. It shouldn't be that I hard. Just have that, I have that impact, my friend. It's, it's all me. You're welcome. Richard asks, with the congested schedule that FIFA has set up for the World Cup qualification... Do you think that the five-player substitution rule should remain in international qualifications? What do you think, Taylor? Should it remain or should it go bye-bye? Uh, this has made me feel like a massive hypocrite because, like, as a Manchester United fan, I have long said it was silly that the Premier League did not have five substitutions. And yet, in, in this, I was like, yeah, totally. But then the big teams will have even more players. Oh, no. And I totally now understand why small clubs were maybe hesitant to go the five subs route. But with all that said, I say yes. I think it's definitely a thing that, that they should incorporate at least for the next couple of years or maybe at least for the Euros that are coming up. Because I think given in- injuries, given the congestion, it allows you to better manage minutes and it allows you a bit more flexibility uh, both if a player is carrying an injury coming in but also I think for clubs who don't want to say Chelsea knowing Christian Pulisic has had some injury issues they don't necessarily want to release him for two friendlies or one friendly in one qualifying game at a time when they've played a bunch and they're going to be playing more but maybe if they know well there's two more substitutions on top of that we can more easily guarantee some sort of like limitations on minutes and things like that I guess it wouldn't matter for friendly since you have the six or seven subs but for more uh, competitive games I think that probably helps clubs feel more comfortable releasing their players for national team duty you said it already but we've seen a lot of injuries at club level since soccer returned earlier this year players are already playing a ton of games with their clubs so then after you add in the long flights and the travel and all the other logistical hassles that go into moving from your club team to your international team, that could cause some real issues and even just add on to the injury problems that we're already seeing all over the soccer world. So I'm with you, Taylor. Why not keep the five-sub rule, right? Why not have, why not take some of the strain off of the players and, and not add in unnecessary difficulties to their lives? At least give managers the option to use all five subs because they're not necessarily going to. But if, I mean, if Spain's beating some some team in their group for a major international tournament, if they're beating Kosovo, five nothing at halftime get five new guys on the field right there's no reason to do that to not do that save some legs get the new players on the field but if they're losing then should we not allow it should spain have to play with the team <laughs> that they're losing five nil to kosovo too i mean i'm not prepared to uh sort of no. put them to that task but if you want to you're more than welcome to but yeah, I, I think I, I do not. Uh, but I do think that fundamentally you give more players an opportunity to play for their country. Um, I think as long as you're keeping the rosters the same size, then it means that you're not really changing that much aside from you're giving managers more flexibility to change things up tactically, but then also handle the physicality of the season and the season beyond this one. So I think, yeah, for all those reasons, I am okay with uh, the five subs uh, being allowed for international qualification games. Not that this is what matters, but as a viewer, for me, it was a little bit weird with the five sub Mm -hmm. rule at the beginning. It was a lot of change. I remember watching in the MLS's back tournament and just players were coming in. Matias Almeida would sub in four guys, four attacking players Mm -hmm. midway through the second half of almost every game down in Orlando. And it was weird. It was wild, and it took me a while to get used to. But now at this point, a few months removed from that, it seems normal. And I don't see a real issue with putting it into those international games, too. Is that rule, the five-sub rule, weird to you, Taylor, at this point? Or has that sort of strangeness faded over time? Um, I, I, it was never that strange to me, to be honest. Okay. I think a big part of that is because, and probably this is what you're speaking to, is that they they did sort of limit the number of times you're allowed to substitute. Because I think the concern was if one team has five subs, the other has five subs, that's now 10 potential stoppages of play. If you get to the 75th minute and each team still has three subs remaining, it's really going to slow things down and could potentially like like alter the rhythm of the game because you can sub somebody, then 10 seconds later sub somebody else and really kind of disrupt the rhythm. And I think the the limitations on the number of times you're allowed to substitute people and is I forget I think it's still three a game I could be wrong on that one but it's basically there are set intervals that you're allowed to make those changes so that you don't alter the flow of the game I really like that although to your point then with that you can then have moments when four players are coming on and it feels like a line change which is kind of odd and I I want to be clear I kind of like that I like that Matias Almeida did that because it hmm. changed 
managed games down in Orlando. And I think actually more coaches should do that, at least because I, I think it's fun. But it was a little bit disconcerting. It was just strange because I hadn't seen that before ever in watching a soccer game in, in my entire lifetime. But now I think the strangeness has faded and it's become cool. normal. So I'm kind of where you are, or where you have been since soccer came back. All right. I think we've, we've, we've been mostly on the same page. Shall we see if that continues with our final question? Oh, yeah. Bring it, Taylor. All right. From Ira Jersey, my question simply, who said very nice things about being a father and parenting and all that stuff. So thank you, Ira, for that. Uh, my question simply is, from what he's done at Darby County so far, do you think Wayne Rooney could become a top tier coach? Oh, boy, there's so much to this. And I, I think let's start yeah. with the background, right? So, mm-hmm. so Wayne Rooney signed for Darby County in January 2020. As a player coach, which is another strange soccer thing to me. And we should say off the back of his performances with D.C. United and nothing else. Right. It was all the strength of D.C. United. That's what made Darby County think this is our guy to take us places. Yep. Just catapulted him straight into the spotlight. Mm-hmm. He had never been From there nothing before. nothing to start <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's exactly right. Darby yeah. County parted ways. We're fast forwarding into November. Darby County parted ways with their manager, Philip Koku, on November 15th. And Wayne Rooney was named as part of Darby's inter- interim coaching so staff, right? Yeah. It's a weird – it was a very strange thing that sort of ended up with Rooney and Liam Rose, Rosenier. Rosenier? Rosenier? We're going with Rosenier. Sure. Those two guys – That's the easier one. <laughs> he was in there too briefly. <laughs> they had sort of this interim coaching staff co-manager thing going on and then that yeah. that stopped. Rooney took over – It was like over. a committee. It was management by committee. <laughs> it's just bizarre, man. It's it's yeah. really strange. Rooney took over the role though permanently mm-hmm. – uh, not not permanently, excuse me. He took it over by himself and took himself yeah. out of the squad because he was still playing as this all was happening mm-hmm. and that was six games ago. Since then, Derby have moved up a couple spots in the table. They were very bottom. They were in 24th in the English Championship – when Rooney actually took that spot. And since then, they've gone unbeaten in six straight games. They just won a game earlier today as we're recording. So that's the background. Wayne Rooney has managed six games more or less by himself and is right now in charge of a club that's in a lot of... Uh, there's That's in a pretty tough spot at the moment. And yes. so the question that I'm going to flip it to you after I did the legwork there without mm-hmm. actually answering the question, <laughs> from these games, can we tell if Wayne Rooney is going to be a top-tier coach? No, I don't think we can. Um, I, I, I have long thought that he would probably not end up being a manager just because, like, in contrast to some of his teammates at Manchester United who were all like Ronaldo, you know, waking up at 4 a.m. to go for a run and do 200 sit-ups, whereas Rooney would talk about how he liked to eat Chinese food and drink a beer after a game. We know he liked to smoke cigarettes. It didn't feel like he was like, like soccer was the end all be all of his life. I'll be honest, that has changed a little bit over the last couple of years. I do think he is going to be in management for a while. I don't think he is going to get sort of catapulted up to that next level as quickly as, say, Frank Lampard did coming out of Derby. Uh, I think there are reasons for that we can get into later. But I think the sample size right now, such as it is, is just not enough for me because it's not like they had they had lost 11 games in a row. He comes in and now they've won five in a row like you know, numbers can be what you want them to be. It's the danger of statistics. But uh, the the numbers that I saw were Philippe Cucu uh, was sacked after a run of one win in 11 games. The way you're phrasing that there, you're leaving out that like a number of those results were draws. And then Rooney's of like six games unbeaten. It's like, yeah, but only one win there. So once again, we have six games with one win or 11 games with one win. If he doubles that, then, you know, he's doubled that result. But it's still it's not to me this sort of, oh, he has turned things around. He's playing this different formation. He's got everybody on board. And now suddenly things are dramatically different. This guy is going places. To me, it's sort of like, okay, he's made some smart choices. He's more or less stuck with the shape that they were playing. It tends to be a 4-2-3-1 from what I could see. Um, seems like a big difference is that Wayne Rooney isn't playing. That seems to have been a big contrast. And when he was playing under Koku, from what I saw, like one game, he was a deep lying midfielder. One time he was a number 10. One time he was a winger. One time he was the central striker. Another time he was in a, a, a two up top. And it seems like there were a lot of different attempts to get him doing different things. And I almost wonder if that was part of the uncertainty and lack of stability there. So he is definitely brought in, I guess by removing himself, he's brought in some stability. He has definitely made the back line better. I think they never kept. Uh, a clean sheet in back-to-back games under Koku. They have already done that under Wayne Rooney. So there are signs of progress there. There are signs that he knows what he's doing. He's not, 
Diego Maradona, uh, who, by the way, passed away. Kind of forgot about that one <laughs> since I've last been on the show. So I feel bad now using him as my example. But I would say when he was managing Argentina, it always felt like he's managing Argentina because he's Diego Maradona, not because he's a tactical genius. I wouldn't say that Wayne Rooney is now managing Derby because he's Wayne Rooney. I think it's probably why he got some opportunities there like because of that name recognition. But I think he is now back justifying it a little bit. But I don't think that then means he is destined to be a top tier coach necessarily. I agree with you. And I want to say it's not that I don't think Wayne Rudy couldn't become a top tier coach. It's very possible that he could be a great mm-hmm. coach someday. But from what we've seen right now with Darby County, we don't know, or at least I mm-hmm. don't know. Maybe someone out there does Rooney has said that he wants to go into management, and this seems yep. like a decent time for that to happen. Maybe it's a decent pathway. He still doesn't have his UEFA A license, though, which is a little bit of a problem. I yeah. think coronavirus put a put a little bit of a damper on those proceedings, and so he still has his UEFA B license. I don't know how big of a problem that is going forward, but between that and just the small sample size, and again, what you said, Taylor, I thought this was a good point, it hasn't been a, we're losing a bunch of games by five goals every game, and then we're turning things around and winning 3-0, and just over and over again, they've only scored five goals in their last six games, and they've only given up two goals as well in those six games. But that's not a, a mind-blowing goal differential. Rooney hasn't come in trying to reinvent the wheel and, and be Pep Guardiola 2.0 and change up a bunch of things tactically. He said that he wants to simplify things, and that's what he's done. He's kept a similar shape. He's gone back to basics, added that 4-2-3-1. There are a couple of different possession rotations from what I watched. They'll drop a central defensive midfielder between the center backs or next to them to create a back three and push one of the fullbacks higher or both of them higher. They'll also change depending on the opposition shape exactly how they attack. So there are some good tactical things happening, but it's not it's not rocket science. It's not next level tactical stuff. Rooney so far from everything that I've watched has stayed true to his desire to simplify things. And for now, that's working well enough to probably get Darby out of that bottom three and away from the yeah. relegation zone. And this is a Derby County. I think you said this uh, earlier, but it's worth repeating that, uh, but I think like by, by their own, their players and maybe even their owners own estimations, like are not a very strong team that they've had to curtail spending a little bit, uh, due to COVID, but also I think because they had been spending a lot of money, uh, previously, I think they, they were, are trying to tone it down. So this is arguably one of their weaker squads they've had in a while. They're reliant on younger players, academy players coming through, which is a thing that, uh, by my reading, people were concerned Rooney wouldn't continue that trend. He definitely has. So I think that's another reason why people are positive about him. I think the reason why I'm hesitant to say, like, will he be a top tier coach? Definitely. Aside from the fact that we have a very small sample size is also that I think where Ira's question is coming from is like the era in which we live of like, you know, Pep Guardiola obviously gets the opportunity he does with Barcelona, but maybe was always destined to be a great manager. But I look at, say, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer managing Manchester United, Frank Lampard at Chelsea. I think there are these sort of uh people in the right position at the right time when the club needs a new manager with a connection to the club or needs new blood that isn't going to like break the bank they can bring in these sort of club legends sometimes it works sometimes if you're Mikel Arteta maybe it doesn't work as well uh but i think that that seems to be a more common thing at least in my mind in the current era and so maybe that is where Rooney might get an opportunity except that DC United aside the two teams that seem that he would have the obvious connection to would be Everton and Manchester United. Everton, uh, very, very strong, uh, currently under Carlo Ancelotti. I can't see them firing Carlo Ancelotti to bring in Wayne Rooney. And I think with Man United, having Solskjaer there is already sort of like fulfilling that uh, former player, former legend, turn manager experiment. And I don't know if they would then sack Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to bring in Wayne Rooney, who himself doesn't have that experience. So if you kind of r- rule out those two, barring some other big team coming in and saying, this guy is who we r- want to roll the dice on, I think what it will require is him probably getting that job permanently, which I think if results continue to be decent to good, he will. And then it's about grinding and finding a way. Maybe he gets them promoted. Maybe he jumps to a larger championship team who could go right back up or a team who get relegated from the Premier League this season. They bring bring, bring in Wayne Rooney. He has success. They go right back up and now he's in the Premier League and he justifies that. And then maybe he gets another move. But I think it will probably be more gradual moves for him. I think because some doors that could have otherwise been open are closed uh, as I've already talked about. So I think that limits how quickly he can rise. That That's my take on it. I'm wondering if you have thoughts, positive or negative, about that, Joe. 
I don't see room for Wayne Rooney to be managing Manchester United or Everton anytime soon. And I think that's, I think that's good. Getting experience yeah. with Derby County right now is, is an opportunity, probably an unexpected opportunity for him. But that's not a bad thing. Let's, let's see him get those results throughout the rest of the yeah. season or however long he has that interim tag. Potentially he'll be named the actual, you know, full-time manager later on in this year, in this season. And then after that, see what happens. I completely agree. It's his time to show what he can do with this team. And likely that imprintation, that's not a real word, his ability to, to give tactics and to give an identity to Darby County. We probably won't see that if he does get the job until next season. He's trying to get this mm-hmm. team to stay in the championship. That is yeah, the one exactly. goal. That is his one job. If he gets that job as manager and expecting anything else, expecting to see wild tactical things or to see his players really thrive, that's probably unreasonable. And if he's able to keep them in the championship this year and he gets the job next year and he does well, then we're looking at a different situation. Then we're looking yeah. at potentially a manager on the rise or maybe Wayne Rooney just is a decent English soccer coach and becomes a, well, a very good English soccer coach because it's hard to be a professional coach. But maybe he ends up coaching in the championship and then either sticks at it or decides to do something else with his life. He has options, but right now it's not time to forecast him as the next great English manager. No, because it, it, it as you said, it could go either way. That Let's say he does keep them up this season, but then next season they start slowly and it's more like, ah, oh, you know, they're not creating as many chances. There's still some questions about the the defense. They haven't been able to bring in as many players. Like it could still kind of be the same story next season. It could also be that he's solidified the defense. He's given them more attacking freedom uh, from what I've read. So then maybe next season they spark and, and they're now in the top six, let's say, in the championship. Now he's proven maybe that this team can play well he can uh do the defensive job despite being an attacking player Uh, i don't know why those two things seem at odds to me but they do uh but if he proves like he can solidify the defense he can keep his team scoring goals and he can do so on a relatively tight budget does that make him appealing to say crystal palace or like a uh, continental team who maybe want the name recognition but also a coach who can be defensively solid and still create chances like i think that they're could be a market for him, and I think he could make that jump to the next level. Not the top level, but the next level. But I think also, I wouldn't be surprised if that doesn't happen. And I think that's because of the small sample size and because of the the relative weakness of Darby County, at least right now. So, I, I would like to see it because it would prove me wrong, because I kind of always assumed that Wayne Rooney was going to fade pretty quickly after he retired and maybe be a sort of like, not even a pundit, but maybe just like pop up here and there doing adverts and the like. But I wasn't sure he was going to be around long term. Now, I'm more confident he will be than I certainly was a couple years ago. Can I add one completely non-Wayne Rooney thought? But it is still Darby County related. I was watching Darby County play some of their games. I watched some film and I was really drawn to one of their players on the field and how he played. And so I wanted to turn this into a mini little mini baby scouting report on Christian Bellick. It was supposed to be Dwayne Holmes. It was the name that you were supposed to say, but fine, I'll roll with it. <laughs> Dwayne I'll Holmes, for everybody out there, has been playing under Wayne Rooney. Mm-hmm. He starts on the right or in the middle or, or in the double pivot. He's been playing in most of these games under Wayne Rooney, and so that's not and necessarily a bad thing. scored in Wayne when Again, you, you did the legwork here to explain it, George, but in that... <laughs> George, sorry. <laughs> Joe, I'm tired. Yeah, you're good. Uh, uh, we've reached near the end of the show. This is when my brain really starts to switch off. But, uh, yeah, he, in that game, when he first took over as like senior interim manager, Dwayne Holmes scores. So I think right there, we can see that Wayne Rooney is, uh, destined for managerial greatness because he got <laughs> Dwayne Holmes to do things again. Hey, I mean, there's Sorry, something to be said I for that. your point. No, no, you're fine. My, my player that I was really drawn to though is Christian Belik. He's a 22 year old Polish central defensive midfielder who plays usually as half of a double pivot in that 4-2-3-1. He's six foot two, has really long legs and loves to drive the ball forward, dribbling it out of midfield. I don't really have a lot more to add on him other than that. But from the the little bit of time I spent watching Darby County film, I really liked this guy. And so I'm curious to come back to this at the end of the season or maybe next season and see where he is as a younger player. And if he's still with Darby or if he's moved on to to maybe bigger and better things. All right. I like the scouting report. I like the conversation about Wayne Rooney. I like answering listener questions and being back on the show. It's been a while, but it's good to be back. Joe, thank you for for easing me in, for letting me sort of find my foot and get my fitness up, if you will. Of course. Seriously, I'm so glad you're back, Taylor. I enjoy I enjoyed hosting things. and I will continue to be doing that over the next you however long. But mm-hmm. man, I just love talking about soccer with you. I had a ton of fun and I am glad that you are slowly and, and patiently and wisely working your way back into the thick of things. <laughs> 
Uh, well, thank you, my friend. Uh, I appreciate that. As I said, I really do appreciate all that you and Ryan have done to keep the show going to, I think, improve. Uh, it, certainly when it comes to our, our coverage of Major League Soccer, you have done quite a good job there. So, Joe, thank you for that. Thank you for everything else. And with that said, I will now be silent. So you can bring this one to the <laughs> Listeners, thank you all for listening. And the Total Soccer Show will be back again soon. <laughs>